0: episode 112 of the pilot the pilot podcast takes off now
1: hey this is gary crump i'm uh, the director of medical certification for the aircraft owners and pilots association i've been doing this for a little over 30 years now and uh um Made a good career out of it. L- lots of challenging things to do, but uh, our job here
0: is to help our members get medically certificated. Navy hey, Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast, episode number 112, featuring AOPA's Gary Crump. Now this is a series that I've started with AOPA. If you remember, I had Rune Duke on a couple weeks ago and we talked about the national airspace, but basically I want and AOPA was gracious enough to let me in, let me on the inside so we can showcase what AOPA does. What it is more, Your membership is more than just a magazine and a credit card or a membership card. There is so much more to AOPA and everything that they offer and they do for our flying rights that they do for just for flying in general, aviation in general. So this is a series that I hope Hope that will keep continuing, and we'll be able to showcase every single department in AOPA because they have a lot of cool stories. They have a lot of cool, cool things that they do behind the scenes, and I just want to be able to showcase that. And hopefully, we'll be able to do that more. Today's episode is with Gary Crump. Gary Crump is the uh, kind of the head of the medical department. He is the uh, the one that's been there for a while, and he knows pretty much everything about the FAA, the medical process, basic med, pretty much anything and everything. He's the person that you want to talk to, and you'll be able to tell that throughout this episode how in depth taking can hope and just the stories that he has. This is a very entertaining episode as he is just very easy to talk about all this kind of stuff. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer before we start, but uh, if you do like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on our website, pilotthepilothq.com and our Instagram app, pilot. Without any further ado, here's AOPA's Gary Crumb. Hey, Gary, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast.
1: Hey, Justin, thanks so much for inviting me. Glad to, glad to be with you.
0: Absolutely. I'm excited to talk with you. This is something kind of out of the ordinary, something I'm not really uh, used to talking about. It's more talking about, we'll talk about this too, but it's more focused on uh, the individual story. But this is going to be more focused as well, kind of closer just on a subject. It's going to be focused on medicals, uh, the history of medicals we can kind of get into if you want to talk about the AOPA or the, how they have helped pilots and then what they continue to do to help pilots. So it should be a fun talk today.
1: Great. Yeah, there's a. It, I call it a target-rich environment because uh, you know medical certification is not an area that uh, most pilots really think too much about. Uh, the majority of pilots, when they go on and apply for a medical, probably ninety-five plus percent of the people that apply are actually issued a medical certificate by their aviation medical examiners right at the time of the exam. But uh, for the five percent or so that don't get issued, they're in the office. It can, uh, it can get pretty hairy fairly quickly because you know, most pilots, um, you know, they, they understand airplanes, they understand aviation, but they don't really know too much about medical issues, especially their own medical issues. So one of the, one of the things we really try to encourage pilots to, to do, and this starts really even before you apply for the medical, is you know, do your homework, know what your medical condition is, what your medical status is pay a lot of attention to the uh, FAA online application called MedExpress. It's the what used to be the 8500-8 application form because that is a legal document. And uh, each time we apply for a medical certificate, we are subjecting ourselves to what the FAA calls an investigation to determine that we are in fact qualified for the medical certificate that hopefully is going to be issued to us. So if you don't, um, you know, if you don't really pay a lot of attention to what's going on on that application and, and you report a medication, you report a new medical condition that's never been reported previously, or you even report a visit to a, a healthcare provider other than maybe your primary care doctor. So you report a cardiologist uh, for a heart issue or you report a, a urologist because you had some type of urological issue, or a, a neurologist for some type of a, a nervous, nervous system issue. All those things are, are, are kind of flags to the AME and certainly to the FAA. So anything you report on a medical application is um, subject to scrutiny, and if it's anything out of the ordinary, it's probably going to result in a pilot getting a, 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 a pen pal letter from the FAA, asking for more information uh, to determine if they are in fact qualified. So that's you know kind of a a long-winded introduction to what we do, but that's our role here at AOPA. We have uh, six medical certification specialists within our Pilot Information Center, and uh, AOPA members hopefully take advantage of the of the PIC. They can call it call in on the eight hundred line. And ask our aviation technical specialists, our digital product support specialists, and our medical certification specialists just about any question that pertains to flying in the United States or internationally, for that matter. Obviously, we're general aviation centric, but uh, we we really are uh, probably some of the best informed and best educated uh, technical specialists that deal with FAA and medical certification. Uh, aircraft certification airman certification uh, there is i mean there 's just nobody else that has a broader scope of knowledge and uh, current information than our pilot information center specialist, so I certainly encourage AOPA members to take advantage of their membership and if they have anything you know out of the ordinary, absolutely give us a call there is so much there's so much disinformation. And misinformation floating around now, you know, with the Internet, everybody's an expert. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of those so-called experts don't have an idea what they're talking about. So part of our job is to is to get people out of the jams that they have managed to get themselves into by listening to, you know, their hanger buddy or, uh, you know, somebody, somebody that claims to know what was going on. So we helped, uh, helped to get them straightened out and get them back on the right track. So, you know, our, our job is, uh, you know, we consider ourselves kind of ambitiously lazy. I personally would much rather deal with somebody's medical certification issue before the FAA ever finds out about it. That way we can get, we can get that pilot off on the right track right foot you know basically off on the the right the right radial radial of the vor to make sure that the problem you know is handled as quickly and as expeditiously as possible because once the faa is in the in the game man they can just keep coming back asking for more and more and more information and uh we may you know get into it a little bit later on about how the faa does their business but there's a big difference between what it what we know is clinical medicine, which is what most people experience. they go to their doctor, their doctor examines them and makes a diagnosis and treats it accordingly and uh you know the the clinicians in the healthcare system, their job is to uh, is to keep their patients healthy and you know give them a good quality of life but the f a a doctors the f a a Office of aerospace medicine has a different role as the regulators because their primary job is, to, is the safety of the National Aerospace System. And the Office of Aerospace Medicine does that part to fulfill their mission by making sure that pilots who apply for a medical certificate have met the qualifications and meet the FAA's requirements, which are sometimes kind of stringent, and they're certainly outside the purview of clinical medicine. So the regulatory side of, of, of medicine is a totally different animal, totally different world from clinical medicine. And part of our job is to explain to the pilots why the FAA says they can't be medically certificated when, when their cardiologist says, oh, you had stents and you're doing fine. We don't see any reason why you can't fly. So that's a, a, a common disconnect that we help, help pilots sort out. So uh, that's a long-winded <laughs> explanation about what we do, but uh, it's, you know, it's this stuff gets pretty deep in a hurry,
0: I bet. and I one thing that's really interesting, and i and I fall into this bucket as well, but I would imagine most people that are aOPA members or have a membership or have had a membership. They don't really understand what that entails. Like, obviously, when you sign up, you get this huge packet, but a lot of people might just, like, throw away that packet, but they don't understand that there is this kind of service for the pilot. They don't understand that they do have someone that they can contact when something does go awry, or they go to want to get in front of it. Maybe they got diagnosed with a disease, and they have questions. Rather than just asking your AME or going to your medical or filling out that MedExpress form, you have someone that you can reach out to, and I think a lot of people might know, like they, they think they know it's there, but in the time of it, they might not think they might ask the wrong person for advice.
1: You're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's still amazing. Uh, how many longtime members, I mean, we have obviously, uh, our member retention is pretty high because we are just such a great organization. You know, we're the largest general aviation association in the world. And, uh, we have members that have been with us for decades and, uh, maybe call us for the first time because they finally you know had to go on blood pressure medicine or they uh, had a heart attack and have to have a stent and never realized that this service was available to them, and so you know, they, everybody gets their magazine either in digital or, or hard copy, and they you know they come to a fly-in every once in a while, maybe. But you're right. Um, the 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 depth and breadth of of services that AOPA offers members is really uh, it, it's amazing to those of us who are, who work for AOPA and just you know l- look across the different lines of business within that, within our organization, and it it really is amazing to, to realize what all AOPA offers to, uh, to, to the members. So yeah, absolutely. If, if anybody, you know, hearing, hearing this podcast, hopefully it'll get listened to by lots of people. Absolutely. Give us a call. And we also talk to non-members too. Obviously brand new student pilots or pilots who are, we call them rusty pilots that have been out of aviation for a long time and are coming back in. They finally got their kids through college and, you know, they're retired and they, have some some time to go back and start flying again. We're not gonna we're not gonna refuse to talk to them. Obviously our job is to grow grow general aviation to the extent we can. So even if you're not a member yet, you know, we're we're gonna twist your arm a little bit, but we're certainly going to help you out to, on that first call anyway, just to get you pointed in the right direction.
0: Yeah, because at the end of the day you are an advocate for general aviation. So it is helpful, especially maybe if it's just the first call. And they might, after hearing this, they might try to stay on call with you for, for days on end just to make sure it's still the first call. But uh, yeah, it, it's a great resource. It, it's good for people to know what AOPA can do. And that's one of the reasons why I reached out to Kevin and tried to, try to put together a series. We've been trying to put together a series of just kind of highlighting what AOPA can offer because everyone, I mean, you think, you know, but to a lot of people, AOPA is a magazine, maybe an Instagram page. Maybe it's a booth to go check out at Oshkosh, you know, or you go to Frederick, you go to, to uh, Virginia. What is it? Frederick, Frederick, Virginia, Frederick, Maryland, Frederick, Maryland. Sorry. Yeah. So close. Fredericksburg, right.
1: it, Fredericksburg, Virginia, Frederick, Maryland. There we yeah, go. We're in Frederick County. We're about, uh, about a 45 minute drive North of Washington, DC. So we're, you know, we're close enough that we, we can be advocates, uh, advocates from our Home base at Frederick Airport, but we also have a legislative affairs office, which is our lobbying uh, faction, down in actually in in, uh, in the district, uh, not too far from the Capitol building. So we're we're centrally located to uh, to advocate for members to the extent that uh, you know that's what we do.
0: Yeah, and you know what's funny is I actually flew passengers. So I fly for a fractional company, and I actually flew passengers into Frederick maryland and i said welcome to fredericksburg and they looked at me like what <laughs> they're like we're in the wrong place and so we're in fredericksburg and i was like wait what <laughs> so that is a common thing that i miss up all the time so the whole episode i might be calling it frederick or fredericksburg but he has clarified it as frederick maryland so if i ever say the wrong one then go back to what he just said. All right. <laughs> he just there wanted to clear there that up go. right now. But yeah, it's, AOPA is huge. AOPA is massive. And what you guys do can, and is so helpful. And it's a shame that it could get lost in kind of how big the company is and how big the organization is, I should say. Um, so I want to kind of ask you a couple of questions about this. So like kind of scenario type stuff. So, we all fill out MedExpress, right? Like everyone's filled out a MedExpress, so you should, I mean, you kind of have to to get your medical, but what happens after you hit submit? Like who's looking at it? What flags are being raised? Is it just a computer that's looking for an algorithm? And like, so once you reach a certain flags then it gets flagged for someone to read it, like kind of what happens when you hit submit on that form?
1: So That's actually a really, really great question. Um, You know, for decades, I mean, until probably... 10 or 12 years ago, everything was done on paper. So everybody showed up in their AME's office and they went to the receptionist and signed in and they get a clipboard with this paper application on it that you have to bear down hard cause you're making a, making a duplicate copy. And then you, you're going into the AME's office and the AME does the exam, looks over the form and, 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 and everything from there was mailed in. So, uh, the FAA finally kind of came into the 21st century. Uh, actually the latter part of the 20th century, well, I guess it was actually the 21st century, with the online medical application. So uh, once you've gone to the FAA website, you've located the MedExpress application, you have to create an account. You know, you can't do anything online anymore without an account. So you create a a, a username and a password, and then you complete the the application. And uh, once you've verified all the information on the application, and, and, and you know this is, again, a little more time-consuming than it is to explain how to do it because, like I said a few minutes ago, you really want to be careful with uh, particularly there are three sections of the application, the medical history section, the medications section, and the visits to health professionals. So once you've been through the whole process, you've completed everything to the form's of satisfaction because if there's any fields left blank, You can't you can't proceed. So, it's uh, you know it's it's very methodical in that respect. But once you uh, complete that application and hit the submit button, it kind of goes into an electronic holding pen for lack of a better term. And you you then have the option to print out a hard copy of the application that you just completed. And at the bottom of that uh, paper copy is a confirmation number. And that is basically your entry ticket into the FAA system. You'll take that confirmation number with you to the uh, medical examiner when you show up for the flight physical. And then the AME actually goes into a different part of the system. It's called AMCS, Aerospace Medical Certification Subsystem, and pulls in that uh, examination based on the confirmation number. Now, back up here just a little bit because there – This holding pin that the application goes into is going to hold onto that application for, I believe, it's 60 days. So if any time during that 60 days that the pilot, the applicant, doesn't submit that confirmation number to the AME and and that number is not entered into the system, that application that was filled out is going to just delete out of the system. Now, whether I can say safely that nobody ever knew that application was in the system is, yeah, it's probably not exactly accurate. Some, if somebody at FAA and IT wanted to go in there and look at all the pending applications, I'm sure they can do that without any problem. But it does not become an official legal application until that confirmation number has been entered into the system. And once once that's done, it's you can't back out. You've got a live application now. And the AME is has basically three choices, two practical choices in the way to handle that application. Like I said at the beginning, the majority of pilots are issued by the AME at the time of the examination. So that's choice number one. If you're found completely eligible, the AME doesn't have any have, have any issues, issues a certificate, prints out your certificate, and you walk out the door uh, a happy a happy camper the other option is if the ame finds something that doesn't meet standards or otherwise raises a uh, a red flag the option is to defer the application and that means the ame just transmits the unissued exam or the application with an unissued status directly to the faa the pilot walks out empty handed and uh, unhappy because his medical wasn't issued to him by the ame and then Once that happens, you basically sit tight and wait for the FAA to respond. So once that application is reviewed, it goes in as a deferral and what's called a priority review. Um, All the unissued exams become priorities for the FAA uh, because everybody else was issued on the spot. So they've got a medical, but the FAA prioritizes those that go in as deferrals because those pilots have not been issued a certificate, so they're trying to get those cleared up so they can you know, decide how to, how to uh, uh, complete the examination process. But it still takes a few weeks after the uh, application goes in for the FAA to generate a letter to the pilot saying, hey, okay, we got your application and you know, we're unable to establish your eligibility to hold a medical certificate. And then they lay out everything that they need to see in order to complete that investigation that we talked about at the beginning and make a determination about the pilot's uh, um, eligibility for the certificate. So it may be, you know, send us a status letter from your doctor regarding your blood pressure control or, you know, whatever the condition is. That's why it's so important to be careful about what you're reporting on the application because that becomes the basis for how the FAA is going to respond. So uh, if it's something simple, they just need a a quick report from your doctor. Those are the types of things that could be handled if the the pilot calls us first and we pretty much know those letters by heart. So we pretty much know exactly what the FAA is gonna be asking for. So if they can have that information when they go into the AME, right off the bat, sometimes the AME can even issue in the office based on that information, but again, Pilots need to do their homework and know what's know what's going to be happening next. Because if they walk in there empty-handed and report something on the on the application that's going to get deferred, then they're they're just adding probably a couple of months to the wait time before something finally happens. Because nothing happens fast with the FAA, and certainly on the medical certification side. The third the third option for an AME, which doesn't happen very often, but if a pilot walks in and clearly doesn't meet the medical standards in part 67 the ame is actually authorized to issue a, a denial based on the disqualifying history but most ames i can't ima- i can't think of any ame that's that i know of that's issued a denial outright because it's more paperwork and it puts a little bit more of a burden on the faa when the ame does that but uh, so that's why the FAA says, you know, if an AMA has a question about it, just defer the application. The FAA gets involved in it, the docs at the certification division in Oklahoma City or one of the regional uh, medical offices around the country, one of the nine regional medical offices. Then they generate a letter to the uh, the airman, and then that starts the back and forth uh, with the FAA for the pilot to get whatever information the FAA is requesting into them so they can review it and hopefully, you know, then establish eligibility and then issue the certificate. So it's, again, uh, it, it's kind of easy to explain, but it's, you know, it's a little complicated if you, you know, if you're hearing it for the first time. So I apologize if it says, what did you just say? That doesn't make any sense at
0: all. <laughs> they can just but back you know. it up and let's re-listen to everything you said for the last couple of minutes. <laughs> so that's fine. They'll figure it out. <laughs> or they'll call you, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah. or they'll call yeah. you for their uh, one free phone call if they don't belong. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you brought up a a good point of uh, pilots need to kind of understand what's going on and what kind of health issues they might have going into this. But I mean, that's an interesting concept and question to bring up because a lot of people don't know they're unhealthy until they're unhealthy. And maybe they they don't go to their primary physician all the time. Maybe they don't go every year or every six months, whatever it may be, because they think they're healthy. And then they just somebody's been like, oh, you go see a doctor. They're just going to tell me I'm okay but let's talk about like common things that they can be on the lookout for that most AMEs will or bring those red flags that could cause a deferral, that could cause the FAA to get more involved. Are there things is it high blood pressure? Is it bad vision? Is it among, like, we've all been an AME before. Let's probably listen to this and you see what they check. There's not really like a set thing of what, I mean, they do their blood pressure. They, they do a couple tests on you and check your, make sure you can breathe all right. But like, what, what all are they looking for you? What are they looking for to, to cause a deferral in person?
1: Well, you've swerved into a really a good philosophical point to discuss here, because the the basic third class we we'll, we'll talk just about third class because that's you know the majority of pilots are well actually, that's not true anymore. We could say have a lot of pilots who are flying under basic med now uh which is the alternative to third class medical but uh, we'll talk about third class because it's it pretty much is the same. For all three classes, first, second, and third class, but uh, the the exam is is not intended to pick up significant pathology that would be picked up by a specialist who is really you know sending you down the rabbit holes to do evaluations for this symptom or that symptom. So the obvious things that the AME is going to pick up. In a routine physical exam, clearly is going to be uh, blood pressure issues, um, and that's uh, that's a terrible thing to to be surprised by because you know monitoring blood pressure is something everybody can do. Anybody can pick up a you know a, an electronic blood pressure cuff for you know thirty bucks at Walmart and start keep tracking keep start keeping track of their blood pressure. So that's a pretty you know, that's a pretty easy one to to avoid. But it it still it still happens. Uh, vision problems. That's why we always suggest that pilots uh, see their eye doctor, their optometrist, for a routine eye exam, uh, at least every couple of years. For pilots over forty who will be renewing a third class medical, you know, every twenty four calendar months. Because again, if you don't meet the vision standards, you don't meet the standards. And and it's you know that's it's real sad to uh, to be able to see twenty fifty in one eye when the standard is twenty forty. And if you just gone to the eye doctor, maybe change your glasses prescription or put you in glasses. You know that's uh, that's an easy easy fix to that problem. Other things that the AMEs can pick up with a pretty good exam are it's called a carotid bruit. It's a, uh it's a uh, a sensation of turbulent flow in the carotid arteries that feed blood to the brain up in the neck. So uh, sometimes you can pick up uh, carotid artery disease. Uh, Heart murmurs uh, uh, again, pretty pretty easy to pick up uh, for an Ame who's doing a a really you know a pretty thorough office exam. Uh, Other things, uh, the Ame is going to be noticing, not necessarily as part of a physical exam, but they are taught to look for anything that's kind of kind of weird or out of the ordinary when the when the applicant comes in. And sometimes the Ame's offices, the Ame's uh, rely on their office staff, the nurse, you know that that sees the, the pilot when he or she comes in for the exam. And, if, you know, for some people with, you know, that ultimately are found to have maybe some mental health issues or some top, something that doesn't, that just doesn't look right, uh, the topic of the conversation, how the, how the, the pilot, uh, his affect, how he conducts himself or herself in the office, how they show up, are they appropriately dressed? Um, do they have alcohol on their breath? Unfortunately, that's one that, you know, it's, not uh, uncommon by any means um things that the ame can pick up on that could be the basis for uh for a deferral if you know if you know if the ames are are trained to look for things that just don't quite look right and um you know i there's, i give so much credit to aviation medical examiners because they do have a difficult job. And now we look at what's going on right now and we look at all healthcare professionals, I think probably in a different light, uh, with, with all that's going on right now, but AMEs are, you know, they're, they're uniquely trained because they, they, uh, many of them are pilots themselves and they go through some, some, a good, good training by the FAA to be designated as aviation medical examiners in the first place. So, you know, they're, they're, they're physicians. And they're aviators. And so the, the blending of those two, two things makes them aviation medicine, uh, aviation medicine professionals. And uh, the FAA you know, obviously relies on them significantly to kind of be the first line of defense and keeping the, keeping the, air spa- uh, keeping the airspace safe.
0: Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting that you say the first line of defense and it's also interesting that they use their office to kind of like, it's kind of, you need to know as a pilot, when you're going into that room, you're kind of being surveyed from the second you step in there. Like there's eyes on you. There might be a camera like nine times out of 10, you'll be fine. But if if you start acting, excuse me, if you start acting a little bit weird, then that's going to raise some more questions. It might cost some more tests and it might cost some more just might cost some more probing to see what's going on. Um what so here's a question kind of form from there. What would you say are the most common ways pilots can lose their medical? Is there I don't know if you have data behind that, I don't know if there are stats. It's like, well, sixty percent of all pilots over forty are high blood pressure. Like what is the most common way for someone to receive a deferral? Um, boy, there's lots of lots of reasons the applicant can get deferred.
1: But I'll tell you one of the reasons, probably the biggest reason, and this is this is something the FAA talks about all the time in all their seminars and the presentations that, uh, they, that they attend, aviation medicine meetings and the like. Uh, the, the most common reason pilots get denied, at least initially, is what's called a failure to provide requested information. So in this circumstance we've been talking about where the airman walks in and doesn't have any documentation and the AME has to defer, the FA comes back and asks, uh, writes back to the airman and asks for uh, an evaluation. Let's say the, the guy's had a, let's say he had a heart attack and had a stent placed. And uh, so the FA is gonna come back and ask for a cardiovascular evaluation. And that includes the records of all the medical care, cardiac catheterization, you were seen in the emergency room for chest pain. Uh, they found, disease. So they put in a stent. So there's, there's records for all that that the FAA wants to see. And they also want to see um, a treadmill stress test. It's a Bruce protocol, standard exercise, treadmill stress test, routine lab work they'll ask for, and a good narrative report from the, from the treating physician, the cardiologist. And if for whatever reason, the pilot does not provide that information to the FAA, usually it's within 60 days, but uh, that that varies a little bit. But uh, now. Especially right now, during the during the um, the pandemic, the FAA is giving pilots additional time to get information into them. So obviously, we're dating our ourselves on when we're doing this because hopefully, uh, in, you know, six months the pandemic will be behind us. But who knows at this point? So, uh, so if the airman for whatever reason doesn't provide that information within a reasonable time, the FAA is going to issue a denial and it's under the regulations for failure to provide the requested information. We said at the beginning that uh, a medical application is in fact an investigation. So when the FAA comes out with a letter and asks for additional information, that's what the, that's the information they don't, uh, they want. There's not any negotiating with, uh, would you take this over this? Now, that's not totally true. Sometimes the FA will be willing to accept a different kind of test if, if the treating physician wants that. But generally speaking, if the letter says you, we need these three things, the pilot's going to need to provide those three things in order for the FA to to consider the the application further. And pilots, if they don't do that, they get denied. So that's really the main reason pilots get denied initially is their failure to provide the information that the FAA has asked for. Uh, beyond that, you know, there's certain conditions that are just categorically disqualifying. We touched on those some of the mental health uh, mental health conditions, bipolar disorder, psychosis, those are you know the, the heavy hitters, uh significant untreated coronary artery disease. Uh, If you're on renal dialysis for kidney disease, those are disqualifying conditions. So um, when you start looking at the the, the whole planet as far as international regulatory, civil aviation regulatory bodies, like in the European Union, the FAA is, is head and shoulders above everybody else as far as their willingness to consider pilots with really serious medical conditions. That's primarily because we have built into the regulations the authorization for special issuance, which is a discretionary tool that the federal air surgeon has available at his or her disposal to basically provide waiver allowances for certain types of medical conditions that uh, in other countries would just be permanently disqualifying. But under the special issuance, the discretionary Uh, Regulation that allows the FAA to determine what additional testing somebody would need to go through, and if that testing is found to be satisfactory to the FAA satisfaction, that is, uh, for risk assessment, then they can grant them a special issuance certificate. So that allows the FAA to issue people medical condition uh, medical certificates who wouldn't probably wouldn't qualify if they were applying anywhere else in the country. So that's uh, or anywhere else in the world. So that's uh, that's the big thing that allows the FAA to. The kind of flexibility that um, that leads to so many certificates being issued. The downside to that special issuance process is, again, the FAA can ask for any information that they feel is necessary to, to do risk assessment, because that's really what the FAA does, is they are assessing the risk that during the time that that medical certificate is in effect, which is usually a year if it's under a special issuance, uh, that the FAA has to establish that there's a a reasonable risk that that pilot is not going to experience any impairment or incapacitation during the time that the certificate is actually enforced. So part of the issue with that is that the testing that the FAA requires to be reviewed for consideration of that special issuance can get really, really expensive. And, um, And it goes back to this regulatory medicine versus clinical medicine argument again. When the FAA asked for for an advanced series of, let's say, cardiac evaluations, and the pilot then goes back to his or her cardiologist and said, "I got to have all this testing done." And the cardiologist says, "Well, we don't we don't need to do that kind of testing. It's not warranted. It's not indicated <laughs> with your clinical presentation." And so that puts the pilot, you know, the applicant in the kind of in the middle between his treating physician, who says this testing isn't necessary and the FAA's regulatory position that says yeah it is necessary for us to be able to do our job so that's one of the you know one of the quandaries that that pilots often find themselves in and then you know call us to ask you know what is going on here why <laughs> why am i in this position so the special issuance is an important uh, part of the regulations and it's you know it's got to a- it's got an upside and it's got a downside.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I've I've heard stories about that where they go to their doctor, the FAA requires more tests, and the FA or the doctor like, Well, I've I i do not do that. Like I've never had to do that. There's no reason for it. And it's not the fact that he thinks that test is stupid. It's just he doesn't understand. And it's not like he's not going to give it to you eventually. He just needs to know why. You know, they need to they need to kind of it's kind of the same way. You want to go into your AME. With all the information in front of you, and the why, and what's happening, and why it happened, and all that. Same thing when you when you're working for a specialist, and you want to go into all those exams and be like, "Well, this is the why." You need to get the why before you go to to help delay, to help mitigate those delays that could happen.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And and again, the problem is the more complex the medical history is the longer the laundry list of things that the FAA is going to need to see uh becomes and that's where it it starts to get really you know cost prohibitive in in many respects and that's one of the reasons why AOPA worked for literally for decades to um to to establish to get the FAA the government to establish a a, a different medical certifications standard that resulted in us getting basic med uh, passed here a few years ago. And it uh, allows more uh, opportunities for for pilots to medically self-assess rather than relying on the FAA to find them qualified for a medical certificate. And that's why we see so many pilots uh, applying under basic med now who – have held special issuances, but the cost of maintaining that special issuance on an annual basis is, you know, a, a insurance, an insurance, annual insurance premium on the airplane or lots of, uh, lots of gas for the airplane to fly. I mean, it can get into thousands of dollars real easily. So, you know, ma- once you have a special issuance, that's kind of the be that, that that's beginning the, the, to be the front end of the money pit when you, We have to start uh, repeating all that testing every year. And for somebody like that had a stent placement or had bypass surgery, or has some type of a heart problem, the minimum they're going to be doing is an exercise treadmill test every year. And that's especially one of those situations where the cardiologist says, why do we, why do we have to do a treadmill test on you every year? It's normal. There's nothing here. You haven't had any change in your medical history, but it's required uh, under the terms of the authorization. So it's, you know, it's, it's an expensive, it's an expensive uh, cost that not everybody factors into there, especially for aircraft ownership.
0: Yeah. No, for sure. It isn't. Yeah. aviation's already expensive as it is. Now you're thrown and fighting for your medical and it's more expenses that you might not have planned for and have not hoped for. So it's definitely uh, an adverse way to make you want to give up aviation, but you were there to help them fight. Um, I kind of want to do a quick step-by-step scenario where I say I just failed or I got deferred my medical. Uh, I didn't go in with a, the the proper documentation. We can insert whatever you want, whatever it may be. But I have just got a deferred. What is like maybe like a five step, or if I don't know if you have like a step by step? What usually happens to try to get that back? Do I call you guys immediately? Do I go talk to a lawyer, an aviation lawyer? Like, what's the best step by step process once you actually get deferred for the first time or second time, whatever it may be? Yeah, the, certainly the best thing to do is call us first.
1: Um, I'll, I'll touch on the on the legal aspects as well because you know a lot of pilots think that you know, a medical. Uh, let's say they get a denial a lot of pilots think that automatically becomes a legal issue and it really isn't it's legal if you if the FAA takes some type of enforcement action or if the pilot thinks that he has really been treated unfairly and the faa has inappropriately denied him a medical and he or she wants to appeal that denial to the ntsb the national transportation safety board in those circumstances going down the legal track is an appropriate thing to do but for the vast majority of the world we live in in the medical certification section certainly the first step after deferral is to you know consult with the AME but and I'm not throwing rocks here at AMEs at, at all but many AMEs just want to do a physical exam and if somebody gets into a little issue with the FAA some of the AMEs really don't want to get involved in that. There are a handful out there that are that are uh, very good at handling more difficult cases that ultimately require special issuances, but most AMEs just, you know, they, they want to talk to the pilot and, you know, have a pilot-to-pilot pilot chat, issue the medical, and you're out the door, and don't come back and talk to me until two years from now when you need to renew your medical. So, if the AME, you know, really isn't Going to be that helpful. Certainly, the the next step is to call us, and then we kind of put you back on the right track. So, um, as is always the case, the answer to you know your your general question is it depends, because everybody's situation is a little bit or a lot different. And the FAA, you know, d- doesn't have a cookie cutter approach in all respects. You know, procedurally, uh, there are some things that are pretty cookie cutter, but they still like to evaluate every airman on his or her merits based on the available medical information and the clinical history and all of that. So if you get de- deferred, then you wait for the letter. That's really the main thing. You should call us in the meantime, and we'll tell you, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get a letter from the FAA, and they're going to say, you know, we need more information to determine if you're qualified. And then it's a matter of going back to the uh, healthcare care providers and obtain whatever information the FAA is asking for, and then get it back into the mail to the FAA so they can continue the case. The A little aside to that is the, the complexity of this review process is made complex by the, the sheer numbers of, uh, of pilots who apply for a medical, the amount of work that has to go on within the certification division at uh, the FAA's uh, the Monroney aeronautical center out in Oklahoma City it's a very it's a very bureaucratic process you know they've got their own internal regulations privacy issues and all kinds of other things that they have to adhere to so there's a lot of moving parts from the time that application is is sent off electronically by the AME <clears throat> it's then routed to one of the 50 or so legal instrument examiners, we call them reviewers, who do the initial review of those applications and then generate the letters based on what's provided and what became the basis for the deferral. So once the process is started, it can take, on average, maybe two to four weeks to get that initial letter from the FAA saying, hey, we need more information. And then, of course, now the pilot has to go out and you know do all the legwork to pull all that information together and now, especially with the times we're in right now, getting in to see healthcare providers is you know, difficult, if not impossible. So there's a lot of frustration and headaches that that goes along with getting all the information together. We always encourage pilots to make copies of everything that they're sending to the FAA, so in case something goes amiss and those records are lost and it does happen because they process thousands of pieces of mail every day. So sometimes things don't get scanned from a hard copy format into a digital format and that's how they operate now. Everything's done electronically. So every piece of mail that gets uh, sent into the certification division gets scanned into the system and then electronically assigned to the reviewer and that individual's uh, uh, medical file. So sometimes when things fall through the cracks and that information gets lost, if you don't have a, a copy of it, then you got to go back to the provider again and get another set. So just one of our rules of thumb is make copies of everything so you got to back up just in case. So then you send it in, and then you wait another four to six weeks or maybe even longer before the FAA responds again. And if they still haven't got enough information or they see something in the information that they asked for first – that prompts them to ask for additional information, then you gotta go out and do this again. And this is not an uncommon occurrence. This is one of the the profound frustrations of dealing with the FAA for pilots is they don't always get everything they need the first time. So, you know, it can it, it can stretch out for months and months and months before you finally get a decision on it. So that's probably the thing that annoys pilots the most is just how how long it takes for the FAA to to respond and finally make a decision, and of course, again, the more complex the medical history and the more information the FAA asks for, the longer it's going to take. So, generally speaking, the FAA would would probably argue with this, but in our observation, we've been tracking what we call the backlog uh, for years. I mean, I've been doing this for 32 years now, and the day I started. Uh, started working here in the medical certification group. where We are complaining about how long it takes for the FAA to make certification decisions, and we're still dealing with the same thing. And that uh, again, the reason for that is the the fact that the FAA, FAA doesn't just want a rubber stamp of denial. They're trying to find a way to get to a yes for as many pilots as possible. And you know the the final denial rate. I didn't mention that before, but uh, to the FAA's credit, the final ultimate denial uh, the, the Denial rate for pilots who apply for a medical is you know less than about two percent. So obviously, the vast vast majority of pilots that apply for a medical eventually get one. It just can be a real pain in the rear, you know, to go through the process to to do it. It's just a very labor intensive process right now because of the complexity of the review process, the human resources uh, restrictions or limitations that the FAA has in place, and then. When you get something external like the, fir- the government furlough that happened at the end of 2018 that lasted until early 2019, um, that slowed them down by months, and it took them almost all of 2019 to sort of almost get caught up with uh, the delays that happened then. And then we got into the you know the, the, the COVID 19 issue, and everybody's working remotely now, even right now. So that you know it, it, any any little external thing that gets into the workflow efficiency of the certification uh, uh, division can really shut things down and uh, really create huge problems. And so, you know, that's kind of the situation we're in right now and it just takes a long time. So we always tell pilots, look, You just got to be patient. This isn't going to happen quickly. You know, nothing happens as fast as we think it should happen and nothing happens as cheaply as we think it should happen. It's going to take more time and more money probably than you ever expected. You would have to spend to get a medical certificate. But that's, you know, that's the world we live in.
0: You kind of answered my question. I was just about to follow this up with, do you think the FAA will ever get that response time down? And I mean, you kind of said it, you've been there for 32 years and it's always been an issue. And their main goal is to get it right, correct? Like they would just want to make sure they make the right choice. They don't want to be too quick and say you're okay. And then a, a disaster happened or be too quick to say no when you could come up with some extra information or get every single test possible. So I I hope one day they can find a way to get that process to be a week or a day or 24-hour or 48-hour, whatever. Just I hope it can get shorter. But it sounds like they do their due diligence and try to make sure they just make the correct move and the correct decision. It just might not be in the timeline you would like. Exactly. Perfect example of that is like we were talking about
1: before we went on the air is the the new uh, insulin-treated policy for commercial pilots. That's been in the works for probably four years, that they've been gathering data, looking at the available literature, watching the technology of continuous glucose monitoring, which is a a huge factor in their decision to uh, start considering uh, commercial pilots. And that took a long, long time. And uh, at at the aviation medicine meetings I've been attending for the last couple of years, we've been asking the federal air surgeon, you know, where do we stand on the ITDM policy? It says we're getting closer we're not there yet, but it's been a process. It's not like they've been sitting on their thumbs by any stretch. So you're right. They, they've got to get it right the first time. It's like, you know, it's kind of like Homeland Security. You know, the, you know the terrorists can, can try as many times as it takes, but Homeland Security has got to get it right the first time and stop the guys before they do the bad stuff. And medical certification is the same way. And really, they're, they're working on a new system, um, a new electronic Aviation Management System, I think it's called AMS, that they're developing right now that should be online probably sometime in 2021. And it's promised to to significantly improve the overall efficiency of the review process and hopefully... We'll start. Uh, we'll start to show some fruit of getting medical certificates issued faster than what it's taking right now. But uh, you know, th- it's a government project, and we all know how government projects go. So they're uh, you know they're they're hedging their bets. They're saying you know possibly late twenty twenty, but I, I think everybody's everybody's money is on twenty twenty one when the new system's in place. The other thing I wanted to mention, Justin, about about getting it right. You know, the, there are certain bellwether events that happened in aviation history certainly we remember well some of us remember the cerritos accident like in 1985 or 86 something like that a midair over in the uh, southern california los angeles basin and that you know it, that completely changed the way they did air traffic control out there um other bellwether events that have happened you know through the evolution evolution of the faa and even prior to that when it was a civil aeronautics board so um the most recent uh, aviation medicine event that really woke everybody up was the uh, german wings accident back in i think it was in 2015 uh the the, you know, the first officer basically uh, committed suicide and took a bunch of people with him and crashed into the into the swiss alps That was a horrible, horrible uh, incident, and the FAA and the German Civil Aviation Authority both had issued this guy a medical certificate, so obviously that attracted unbelievable amounts of attention, and certainly with respect to mental health issues, the FAA has really tightened Tighten the, the reins on uh, mental health uh, medical histories now. So again, that's one of the examples of you know they learn from their mistakes and uh, do their very best not to not have the, the mistakes repeat themselves.
0: Yeah, and that was going to bring me into my next question of where do you kind of see this changing and what has changed while you've been there? And because thirty two years ago, I mean, maybe they thought of things differently and they think of things now. And I wasn't going to bring up uh, German Wings and that accident and how maybe there's more of a mental health aspect to it than what we originally thought and how important it is to make sure someone is of sound mind to go operate a machine, especially when they're flying around 100, 200, whatever it may be, passengers, especially when it could be your loved ones or some other loved ones. like We need to make sure they're going to make the right choices under stress or just know they have, they have a competent mind up there. So what are they doing to combat that? Are we still seeing those changes that come in? and Is that going to be kind of more of a future thing? Or are they implemented everything they're, they're planning on implementing?
1: No, I think change in medical certification policy is an evolutionary process, as it should be. Uh, again, the FAA is the recognized world leader. It's because we're in the United States. We have the technology. We have the best healthcare system in the world. We have the best research, uh, the best technology. So the FAA has lots of tools at its disposal. In establishing risk, and we talked about that a little bit uh, a little bit earlier about how the FAA does risk assessment, and we you know the, the easiest way to equate that equate equate that is to say, you know they they don't have a crystal ball, but that's what they're trying to do is look at all the available medical information, and I keep using heart attacks because that's such a common heart disease, such a, a prevalent disease in in Western society, and certainly in in uh, in our country as well. So the FAA sees lots of cardiac history, and so when they're when they're evaluating pilots with a stress test or nuclear nuclear imaging cardiac catheterization, they have a panel of experts they have a cardiology panel of uh, of really really smart uh, cardiologists and other physicians that they on contract basis to serve as consultants for the Federal Air Surgeon. So those consultants make recommendations to the Federal Air Surgeon about, okay, here's what we think you should do uh, if you're evaluating a first-class pilot with heart disease. So the technology is there, the, the, the literature, the, the research is available. So the FAA is able to mimic this, this uh, crystal ball philosophy of being able to determine that during the time that this medical certificate's going to be in effect which is usually 12 months you know the FAA has got to be pretty darn sure that that pilot is not going to experience any incapacitation or impairment that could result in you know something that compromises the the safety so i think it really is evolutionary as we learn more and more about different disease processes uh, it, it enables the it, the FAA to to make certification policy changes Dealing specifically with mental health, one of the big things that happened back in, uh, I guess, 2010, was the FAA adopted a policy that allows uh, certification for pilots, including commercial pilots, who are taking antide- using antidepressants to treat depressive uh, illness? Uh, there are four currently SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that the FAA established back in that policy in 2010. Now, this was prior to German Wing. So, you know, obviously things didn't go right in that respect. But um, the FAA, prior to that, if you were on, on antidepressants or you had symptoms, whether you were medicated or not, you were going to get denied. And, you know, that wasn't good policy, even though it was, it it certainly satisfied the safety part of the equation, but it wasn't treating pilots right because other countries had already been certifying uh, pilots with depression histories on medications for some time when the FAA policy was changed. One of those uh, one of the things we talked about earlier about, you know, why it takes so long, particularly in these cases, is the, the scope of the evaluations that have to be done by these pilots once they've been on one of the medications. There are four that are allowed. Pilot can only be on one, and they have to be on that medication at least six months. And then there's a long, comprehensive evaluation process under what's called a HIMSS program that, uh, the, the pilot has to go through in order to qualify for special issuance. And those are very time consuming and we could do it uh, probably another podcast just talking about those, but I just wanted to use that as an example of how the FAA is, is adapted to changing, uh, evolutionary, um, knowledge and, and research. And a lot of it frankly has to do with who's running the show at the time, the Federal Air Surgeon uh, reports to the Administrator, but the Federal Air Surgeon is the chief physician for the whole FAA. You know, dealing with everything, uh, drug abatement, pilot certification, or the medical side of medical certification, medical standard practices, AME education. Uh, the Federal Air Surgeon has a has a lot on his plate, and you know the the philosophy and the you know the kind of the personality of oh, the federal air surgeon, I think has something to do with how policy, um, uh, transpires and how it evolves over time. So you know right now we have a fairly conservative, uh, federal air surgeon, but, um, I think he's really, for the most part, done a, a really, really good job of, uh, kind of keeping all the plates, uh, uh the plates flying, uh, with all the, all the things that, uh, that he has on his plate right now. So, but it, you know, it's, it's, they're never going to achieve the perfect. Um, the perfect situation that makes everybody happy, but they're, you know, they're, they really, like I said earlier, they really do try to get to yes as, as often as they can.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, that's good to know because a lot of people kind of view the FAA and the way that they have the view of them is that they're out to get them. They're out to, to make their life as difficult as possible. And when they get the request for all this information that might be going through your mind that like they're picking on me, they don't want me to be a pilot, but from talking to you, that's not the case. That's not the point. They want all the information so they can make an educated decision on what you can do because you obviously want this very bad. You want to be a pilot. They know that. They don't want to take this away from you. They, but at the same point, they have to make the right call for, uh, for the safety of the, the airspace. Like you said, they're the first defense. They get to see the pilots, get to judge how they act mentally, physically, and they are the ones that get to say yes or no, you can go fly. So it's, it. Uh, it, it takes a lot of uh, information to make that decision. That's absolutely right. It's a tough job. I'm glad I don't have it. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I agree too. Uh, we're getting close to an hour here. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I had an interesting question I was thinking of. What would you say in your 32 years, if you can say, has been two parts? One, the most like head-scratching decision the FAA or an AME has made, and what is the other, on the opposite opposite side, what's been the number one change to the system that you've seen that has been beneficial for pilots? Wow, that is a kind of a, tough question.
1: I do, I look at some of the decisions the FAA makes, and I'm not a physician myself, so I've just, you know, I'm a reasonably well-educated layperson, but uh, um, I've I've scratched my head a few times, and uh, looking at individual cases, and a lot of times, uh, the most recent one I'm thinking about here is that the FAA denied denied this guy that I was working with, and I was looking at his records. One of the things that we offered our members through our what we call our pilot protection service is that we can review medical records and kind of give the pilot a uh, an overview of what's going on and make sure he's got the right information and that all the information looks favorable for the issuance of the certificate. And I was looking at this one case, and this is you know fairly recent too. And I was. Yeah, shaking my head, thinking, why did they keep denying this guy? I mean, there's nothing here that I can see that you know warrants a denial. And as it turns out, after you know some more exploration, we found out that the the pilot had submitted some current information that kind of fell into the black hole at the FAA, and nobody ever looked at it. And sure enough, once we dug around and you know made a few phone calls and you know did a little investigation work on our end, we realized this, and then the FAA got the records into the system and one of the docs out there looked at it and sure enough they issued the guy. So the head scratchers usually deal with, uh, I won't say usually often, Deal with the fact that the f a just doesn't have all the information they need that the pilots provided, so it 's a communication breakdown more than anything else and again, with the volume of of records that they get it uh, get into the system you know, certainly on a weekly basis it's it, it amazes me that they can do their jobs at all i've been out there several times over the over the years to see how they do things, and uh, it amazes me that they, you know, can get anything done with the complexity of what's going on. Um, as far as the biggest change, I think that, that certainly the, the SSRI policy was uh, a huge turning point for the FAA because it brought them kind of up to speed with other countries um, with respect to uh, recognizing that, that pilots who were diagnosed with depression were either not flying when they probably could have been because they weren't, they weren't flying because they weren't on medications. There was no policy that allowed them to be considered for a certification or they were taking medications and not reporting it on their medicals or worse, they were being symptomatic and just not being treated at all and were hiding it and still flying. All of those things were, you know, bad news from a safety standpoint. So, um, the the federal air surgeon at the time recognized that and said, "Hey, we got to fix this problem." So, um, I think probably the most recent, really big sweeping change, next to the most most recent, the ITDM policy for commercial pilots, I think the move to allow the use of antidepressants uh, probably was really a big turning point. It's got its certainly it's got its problems with the with the process and how they make that decision, but the policy itself was was a good move if they can just get the process uh refined a little bit better and, and make that decision that de- decision making go a little bit faster it would be much much better so yeah that's that's probably the the biggest thing in the in most recent uh, most recent time from the faa side from our side from the advocacy side obviously the development of basic med uh has been been a, a huge huge plus medical certification reform, which, like I said, we've been working on as an association since really back in the 1970s.
0: Yeah. And my last question for you kind of coming up is going to be, where do you see the future of this? Where do you see the future of the FAA, AME, the the whole medical process? Was MedExpress the first kind of uh, rollout of a, a new change, or was that kind of where they stopped? And do you see this innovating a lot to make it easier, to make it better, or uh, do you see? I mean, obviously the FAA works very slow, so we might see stuff that we've been doing for thirty years tomorrow. But you know, sure, where, where do yeah. where where do they want to go? Where do they want to go with this? How how streamlined do they want to make this? Uh, what's kind of their plan with the whole process?
1: I think the challenge for for the FAA is continuing to keep the appropriate number of aviation medical examiners designated in the system around the country and internationally for that matter to service the the pilot population. Obviously right now we see a, a skew in the scale because things are just so messed up right now with the, uh, with everything that's going on with uh, COVID nineteen, but you know, once this all this resolves, I mean, there was a you know there was a hiring boom. There were there were all the airlines were hiring, and you know things were just looking great till all this happened. And that you know they will come back, but it's going to take a while. But um, the aviation medical examiners they get tired of the bureaucracy too, and you know they're getting older, and it's just hard to attract physicians into aviation medicine now aviation medicine is a subspecialty like cardiology or nephrology or urology or you know epidemiology it's a subspecialty and there aren't aren't that many aerospace medicine specialties um, among the certainly among the ame ranks so it's finding physicians that are you know interested in aviation that are pilots themselves and really want to take on the job of becoming designated to do flight physicals. So I think the FAA's challenge is going to be over the next few years is is keeping the quality of AMEs and keeping the the quantity of AMEs uh, sufficient to meet the needs of the pilot population around the country. You know, if you live in some rural area in a valley in Idaho and you have to drive three hours to find an AME. Okay. You know, that's, that's one thing, but if you're living in San Antonio, Texas and, you know, nine of the 12 AMEs in that area have retired and the FAA hasn't backfilled those positions, it puts a load on those AMEs and it becomes an inconvenience and a hassle for pilots to try to find an AME to do that. So as long as we're we're gonna rely on, on aviation medical examiners to do their job, which we are, um, I think the FAA is going to be challenged to, to keep the keep the ranks of the AMEs uh, satisfied. And that's going to be challenging because there's just so much bureaucracy and so many regulations and policies and procedures and ways that AMEs can get in, in trouble with the, with the FAA that a lot of them are just losing interest in it. Uh, you know, the practice of medicine is not like it was 30 years ago. So um, physicians, you know, for whatever reason, just, you know, they want to do their they want to see their patients and do what they have to do, but they don't want to mess with with dealing with the FAA and recertification and and all that that goes with it. So that's probably you know probably going to be the biggest challenge for the FAA. And I may be completely off base. That's just my totally my external observation. But you know I think the FAA just needs to continue to evolve and and and. uh be as open-minded as they can, which I really do think they are. We get frustrated with the process and the decision-making and all that too. But you know, when you get right down to it, if somebody asked ask me, Gary, do you really think the FAA is doing an adequate job for pilots? Well, their job is not necessarily for pilots. Their job is to maintain the safety of the national airspace. But at the same time, they want to balance that need to maintain safety, with the the needs and the expectations of the pilots that they serve. And whether we recognize it or not, and sometimes it's easier to not recognize it, that they are a customer service organization and we are their customers, but they're also bureaucrats in a very regulatory, regulated world. So, you know, they've got their limitations as well, but uh, I think they're always looking for the balance of safety and and getting as many pilots uh, Medically qualified as possible.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I actually halfway through I wanted to make sure we touched on the AME shortage because it might not be apparent to everyone that that is the case. AMEs are are kind of going out, you know, not going out. That's that's a poor way to say it. But AMEs are uh, not as accessible as they once were. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Uh, I know for me in Chicago, a major major city, I have to book mine months in advance to make sure I have an appointment when I need it and. That's in Chicago. Think about someone in Idaho going to—I don't know if they go to Boise. I mean, that's a lot of people in a, a big range and radius of people to go see one. And that's obviously, right. everyone has their favorite. I mean, people want to go to certain people. They, they every AME might do something a little bit different. I don't know if that's the actual case, but it, it takes a while to get in there, and that's just going to keep being extended and extended and extended. And it's really interesting to see how they're going to, going to combat that because. There's a pilot shortage. There still will be a pilot shortage when this is all done, when we get back to to what our new normal will be. But there's also an AME shortage. And that's that's going to be pretty detrimental to the whole system. And that could slow down a lot of stuff. And it could make for a lot of change pretty quick.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think we're under about probably less than 3,000 AMEs and I don't know if that's just in the US or that's everywhere, because there are AMEs all over the world. they they have international AMEs that are designated by the FAA, but obviously uh, the airlines fly all over the world and pilots' medicals expire in in uh, in, in Brazil and uh, in Belgium and Germany and everywhere else. So the the FAA has, has got AMEs all over the all over the world to service them. But you know, that's a pretty small number, twenty eight hundred for you know, three Probably four hundred and fifty thousand some odd licensed uh, pilots, and the many of those are class one and two uh, we're not they're not seeing as many third class now because basic med has absorbed some of those people who used to fly under a third class but the number of first class and second class certificates is increasing for the very reasons you cited—the uh, uh, you know the increasing you know continual demand for for pilots. So yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's it's going to be a challenge for them. But uh, they keep telling us, hey, you know our seminars are are full, and we got people that want to become AME. So I said, okay, as long as you got a mechanism in place to do that. But uh, you know the, the numbers have dropped, and for several reasons. I mean, they've you know they want to maintain the quality of their AMEs and you know AMEs retire, AMEs die. They decide they don't want to do it anymore. But uh, you know, they're and, and some AMEs get de designated because they don't do enough exams or they, you know, they screw up too many times and the FA finally says, okay, you, you you can't be an AME any, anymore. Yeah, you're detrimental but, uh, to the system. You know, they, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, it, we don't want we don't want the numbers to get too low,
0: but they're they're telling us, hey, we got it covered, so we'll we'll see, we'll see if they do. Uh, time, time will tell if they truly do have it covered. So we will know sooner than later. Unfortunately, uh, it's like you said though they're, they're not getting any younger. Uh, they just keep aging. They're going to want to retire soon too, just like most of the pilots right now. Or, or unfortunately, maybe they're they're dying. But whatever may be the case, it's, we're going to need some more soon. And it's going to be interesting to see what the FAA and how the community embraces this and what changes do come for it. Uh, Gary, I, I, that's pretty much all I have for you. Is there anything else you really wanted uh, to say or talk about? Why, why I have you here? I think
1: not, man. We covered a lot of territory, and you know, I told you when we were talking about this initially. This is a target-rich environment. We can talk about a lot of different things, but uh, hey, if you want to have me back sometime, we can Absolutely. you know kind of get a little more uh, granular and talk about specific things. But I think we. Uh, we did a really good overview of how the system works, and hopefully, uh, you know, people that are hearing this, uh, you know, and, and getting a taste of this for the first time, have a little bit better picture about uh, the FAA's role and certainly AOPA's role in the process as well.
0: Absolutely, and it would be great to have you back on. Maybe we can figure out a way to get you on every month, and we can have an Ask Gary session where people could just ask questions <laughs> for Gary. You know, <laughs> just another extension of what AOPA that. can do. So we'll see what we can sure. do in the future. Uh, I, I appreciate coming on. Like I said, this is just some really valuable information. I think it's just good to know because it's such a I mean what AOPA is they're such a big organization it's hard to know what everyone can do so to talk to someone that works in a specific role and can help the pilot community and especially with something as pertinent as medicals I mean everyone has to have a medical and at one point you might have a question for medical and you and your team are who they need to reach out to when they have those questions and I think an important thing to do right here right now is for you maybe do you have a website do you have a phone number and email where someone can actually access and reach out to you or is that just through your membership you can click couple links and get there
1: oh yeah go to our website uh, aopa.org and our toll-free number for our aviation technical specialist and uh medical certification digital product is uh 800 872-2672 800 usa aopa we're in the office uh 8 to 6 eastern time five days a week so absolutely we'd much rather like i said earlier much rather deal with the problem before the FAA gets involved with it it makes everybody's lives easier to to do it that way
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Please call. If you have any question whatsoever, it can, they can help out in a massive way. So give them a call. Uh, you said office, but I'm guessing you mean work from home probably too, right? <laughs> Your work from home <laughs> right hours. Now, yeah. <laughs> right now
1: we are hundred percent remote. All the the all, the building our building in Frederick is completely shut down, so all 260 of us are working remotely from uh, wherever we are. So it's uh it's been quite an experience. You know you know it, I mean pretty much everybody's new world for right now, anyways. Yeah. But it's working pretty good.
0: Yeah, it's it's working out. It might work out too good. It might be at home more than you want. You know, in the future maybe yeah, there'll be sure. as many offices, but that's a for different sure. story for a different podcast. Uh, uh, but uh, Gary, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you uh, you sharing your knowledge with us and just letting us know what it's like what the AOPA is doing to help fight and uh, just kind of in ins and outs of the FAA and what their thoughts are on some things so I really appreciate it my pleasure Justin thanks for inviting me I'm uh, glad to come back anytime yeah we got to make that happen for sure Nation, that is a wrap of episode number 112. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you like this episode, like I said earlier, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check out our website, pilotthepilothq.com. And uh, you can check out some of the links there. that take you to Instagram, Facebook, buy me a coffee and Patreon if you'd like to as well. But Aviation, I hope you all are staying safe. And as always, happy fun.